Turn with me to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24 this morning, we are looking at verses 10 through 12. There was once a conference on the sanctity of human life, and the main speaker afterwards was approached by an elderly man with a thick German accent who was weeping. And he told his story. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy. We had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people today in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we would hear the whistle from the distance and the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by. And we grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after the week, the train whistle was blown. We would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that Jews would begin to cry out to us as they passed by our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help those poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at what time the whistle would blow, and we decided the only way to keep from being so disturbed by their cries was to start singing our hymns. And by the time the train rumbled past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it much anymore, but I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. I can hear them crying out for help. God forgive us all who call ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. Now, many people would think it wrong to make any reference to Nazi Germany this morning, calling it inappropriate, unrelated, insensitive. In American schools, children are taught about the horrors of the Third Reich, the Holocaust that led millions of Jews to slaughter. In Germany, children are taught through various stages of their Education about the evils of the Nazi past in hopes of preventing it from ever happening again. We have an entire museum in Washington, D.C., highlighting the atrocious nature of the attempted genocide of the Jewish people in Europe. Movies celebrate Germans who opposed the Holocaust and sought to do something about it. They're applauded, they are awarded. Any reference to Nazis or Hitler or the Holocaust have become synonymous with the most horrific evil that the world has ever known. And it was wicked. It was evil in every way. 
And as a result of that, our nation has the idea that to reference any of these things in relationship to a person or an action or an idea, based on the pictures we've seen and the facts we know of what happened behind closed doors or even out in the open, And yet, what many fail to recognize is that the Holocaust is actually quite small in comparison to the evil. In our very own community, in the most powerful nation in the history of the world. In fact, if you add together all the people killed at the hands of Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and Paul Pott, we still fall far short. In those three countries combined, 40 to 45 million people were estimated to be killed. In America alone since 1973, many of you are alive, 57.7 million unborn children taken away to death. And no one knows how many to add to that as a result of the morning after pill, RU486, now available over-the-counter to children as young as 11 and 12 years old. So nearly 60 million babies who will never see the light of day, all under the protection of state and federal law. No one can calculate the loss of God's intended blessing to this world. No one can measure losing the gifts God planned to birth through the offspring of each and every one of those individual lives. So yes, perhaps a Nazi reference is completely inappropriate, but only because it falls far short of our reality. There really is nothing quite as evil to compare. So you'll understand my usage of something of a smaller magnitude to illustrate my point. And while those Germans were tormented by the loud cries of the Jews being carried away on a train in cattle cars, the evil in our own backyard is all the more pernicious because it's quiet. You only really hear a suction hose or the sound of someone swallowing a pill when you're right next to it all. It's in a supposedly sterilized medical facility. It's promoted as being safe. It's administered by medical doctors. And of course, the United States Supreme Court said it was all okay 43 years ago. And we may not hear the train whistle blow as a train goes by. We may not sing louder to drown out the sounds of screams. But how often have we idly turned our backs and closed our mouths and plugged our ears? How often have we believed the lie that it's none of our business, that women have a right to choose whether or not someone else should be able to survive? How often have we just silently hoped that politicians are going to make it all go away so we don't have to hear about it anymore? There is something particularly evil about a nation who has suppressed the cries of 57 million babies to be nothing more than inconvenient white noise playing in the background of our daily lives. (laughs) 
As I mentioned, today, all across America, Christians and pro-life advocates are mourning the 43rd anniversary of Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, which paved the way for the legalization of on-demand abortion in all 50 states. And while some states impose stricter laws than others, abortion remains available in every state at some point throughout a pregnancy. And so every day of the week, on nearly every day of the year in America, around 3,600 preborn children are being killed in our country. And despite the constant rhetoric of our politicians, virtually nothing has been done to stop it. So, no, America is not Nazi Germany. We have far more blood on our hands. And God, of course, does not take this lightly. And while many people have legitimately worked very hard to do something about all of this, to make it known for what it is, any level of national outrage has never amounted to anything beyond a few talking points, maybe on a few news outlets here and there. But God's word speaks loudly and clearly about his heart for the most helpless members of our society being taken away to death. Let's look at Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, actually, I don't know what page it's on. I forgot to look. (laughs) Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Now before, excuse me, before I get into the text this morning, I want to say a few words to those of you who have in your past had something to do with abortion. Whether you are the mother of an aborted child, the father of an aborted child, the friend or family member who encouraged another person to have an abortion, I realize that hearing about all of this is very difficult and can carry a tremendous amount of pain and shame. And I don't take lightly the fact for you that the rest of your life will carry with it memories and regret of your involvement in ending a life. Maybe you're uncomfortable around children who are the age of what your child would be today. Many women say they feel victimized. They go through times of great depression and self-hate and anger and guilt and loss. But I want to remind you up front of what I want to remind you again at the end. No person for any reason is cut off from Christ because of past sin in their lives. Our intention is not to throw sin in your face to continually remind you of something in the past. Because of Christ, you have been forgiven. However, 
we simultaneously have a responsibility as the church to speak clearly and loudly and regularly about this particular issue because of what we see in the Bible. But I do want to repeatedly emphasize, and I want to emphasize this here behind the pulpit as much as it needs to be emphasized on sidewalks in front of abortion mills. For those who humbly repent before God, there is true forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is hope in the midst of all of your sin. A lady named Beverly Smith McMillan, she opened the first abortion mill in Jackson, Mississippi, and after a life-changing conversion to Christ, she resigned, and she said this. She said, the good news that makes the gospel so relevant today is that God forgives I know from personal experience the blood of Jesus can cover the sin of abortion. And so I admit we have hard things to think about this morning. Hard things for those who endorse, support, perform, and receive abortions. I don't want you to walk, though, out of here this morning without an understanding of God's mercy to forgive, and hopefully a desire on your part to keep others from walking down the very same road that you have in the past. Because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in fact, because of your past, if you are a Christian today, and this has been your story, you are one of the most valuable assets in the fight to save the lives of the unborn. And yet, I fully understand that you are torn as to whether or not to even talk about it, especially if you've fought for years to maintain normalcy. It's not hypocritical to stand against something you were involved in in the past. It's wisdom being applied after you've experienced the results and difficulty and pain of sin and not wanting others to walk in the same way for the sake of a baby, for the sake of their own personal well-being, both physically and spiritually. So that being said, let's consider the text more carefully. I have four assertions I want us to consider this morning. The first is that Christians have a direct responsibility when it comes to taking action to oppose abortion. Look again at verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So we see an imperative. A duty is given to us. And it's fairly easy to figure out what's being said. If there are people who are being taken and their daily lives are being taken away from them and they're taken to be killed, then the people of God have a responsibility to do something about that. There is a responsibility to do what we can to rescue them. Or if you look at the second part of the verse, if there are people who are being led like cattle to the slaughter, we must try to do whatever we can to keep that from happening. And so we have a command to intervene on behalf of those who are being killed, even though they ought not to be killed. So one of the things about the book of Proverbs is that the Proverbs don't generally have a really specific context in which they're written. So when we read Paul's letters, for example, um, or a narrative story from the Old Testament, 
something along those lines, we have to be very careful to consider the context. What's going on here? Why, did, why is it said this way in light of all the other things that have happened? But for the most part, the Proverbs have a much wider use. We have principles of wisdom being given to us, and so we can have a broader application than what we see in other parts of the Bible. So does this passage apply to Christians, for example, who lived in Nazi Germany? Yes, absolutely. Does it apply to Christians today, knowing, for example, that someone is innocent and yet having been sentenced to death for a crime they didn't commit? Do we have a responsibility to say something about that? Yes, we should. We must fight for justice on behalf of the innocent. Does this apply to abortion? Well, of all the situations we could think of, I don't know if there's one more fitting than abortion when it comes to this text. If ever there was a group of people that it could be said are being taken away to death, people that are stumbling to the slaughter who shouldn't be, it is the unborn in America. There is a broader biblical case for Christian responsibility to be made, but from these verses alone, we have a very strong affirmation of God's command to do whatever we can do to intervene when children are taken away to death. Now, one of the ways we intervene is how we approach each and every pregnancy, whether or not It was conceived within the covenant of marriage. There is no doubt a moral complexity here that we have to consider. We can't overlook the fact that sexual immorality is outside of what God has designed. Outside of marriage as the boundaries within which children should be conceived and born. We can't overlook that. It is sin, and sin must be acknowledged, and sin must be addressed. However, the sins of a mother and a father cannot exclude them from receiving mercy and compassion from the people of God. And it especially cannot exclude the church from providing proper care and love to a child. Often, when a woman is pregnant and doesn't want to be, what is the majority opinion that she's probably going to receive from those she confides in? Friends, counselors, maybe even parents and grandparents. Let's not let this ruin your life. Let's go ahead and take care of it. Even our very own president said in 2008 during a campaign stop, quote, I've got two daughters nine years old and six years old. If they make a mistake, I don't want them to be punished with a baby. And so when young, scared women hear these kinds of things, always feeling inadequate, full of questions, confused, without a means to provide for a child, And everyone from her best friend to the President of the United States is telling her, don't punish yourself with a baby. What is likely to be the result? She will be given every line you can imagine it's right, it's safe, it's quick, it's easy. You should just be able to go on with your life and forget about this. 
This is most likely what the majority of those women walking into those places each and every day are hearing. And in the midst of all of that influence and all of that rhetoric, the church must rise up above the noise and say loudly and clearly, God does not want you to end this life and it's not yours to end. But you can trust him. He is enough. You can trust God with your future. He created that child in your womb and it's not a mistake. And you are playing God when you bring it to an end. And we have to be able to say the church is here and we, God's people, will rally around you. We will walk with you through this difficult time. We will help you with adoption or parenting. We will help you provide for and care for your child over the long haul. We will love you. We will show you mercy. We will show you compassion. Don't do this. Can we say that? Are we prepared to love and care for broken families and unwed mothers and their children? Are we prepared to adopt or provide whatever we can for others to adopt children who have been saved from death? If we believe the Bible, we must. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are not a punishment. They're a reward. And so while our president wants to call them a punishment or a mistake, the Christian understands that every single life has value to God and God gives us no option but to love and show compassion and care for orphans and for widows and for the poor. And you know, if you scan the Bible, you'll see that not every pregnancy took place under ideal circumstances, but every child is received as a gift from God. Whatever everyone else might think, and no matter what a woman says are her plans or her future or her feelings or her inadequacies, and no matter what, that say, what they say about their child, whatever doctors say about their child, whether they'll be disabled or have a disease or born with difficulties, should we just devalue what God has created because he or she may not fit our description of what's perfect? Dare we ever speak as God and say, it would be better if this child were never born? Every living human being is unique and different from others. And God has made it so. And if the Bible is our source of true wisdom and the source of every decision we make, we must delight in the joy of children and not see them as an inconvenience, a mistake, or a punishment, no matter how they come to us. They are a gift, and they must be cherished and welcomed and cared for. So you see, it's, it's not that we should, it's not that we can, but it's that we must do whatever we can to oppose this horrific evil. It's not a friend's issue. It has to do with the very essence of our faith. It has to do with redemption and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his lordship. Abortion says that God was wrong when he commanded, do not murder. Abortion says that we can make up our own way of life and totally ignore what God has said. 
Abortion says that Christ is not Lord, but that we are our own lords instead. And so abortion denies the important, enduring, undeniable reality that Jesus Christ alone is Lord over heaven and earth. And as ambassadors of Christ, we have an obligation to stand and to say, this cannot continue. Whether legal or illegal, hastening to death, an unborn child is to assert our own wisdom above the wisdom of God. Only God has appointed to each a time of death. And brothers and sisters, we can't sit and wait for someone else to do something. We can't hope that our politicians are going to do something. Since 1973, they've gone on and on about how they're going to do something. Did you know there were four years in recent history where the president, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the majority of the Supreme Court all said they were pro-life. And you know what that resulted in? Nothing. And over the past several months, videos released showing Planned Parenthood and its affiliates talking about selling the aborted remains of children for research, not for research, for significant profit all against federal laws and regulations. And of course, politicians have said, we're going to put an end to it. We're going to defund them. They had hearings. They asked questions. They got on the news stations and said a lot of things and offered a lot of promises. And yet, the efforts of most of our representatives have doubled down in support of this wicked organization and the funding of their operation by taxpayers to the tune of $550 million every single year. And now, for the first time since opening their doors, Planned Parenthood, a supposed nonprofit organization, has endorsed a candidate for president of the United States who happens to be the same person who received their Margaret Sanger Award. Now, you know, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood the racist eugenicist who created the organization for the primary purpose of eliminating the black population. She wrote things like, quote, we should apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to the black and poor population whose progeny is tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring." And a candidate for the highest office in our land happily received that award. It's the same organization our president stood in front of and said one of his primary objectives in his office was to protect that organization, their funding, and the legality of their barbaric practice. And in the end, he had the audacity to say, God bless Planned Parenthood. No, Mr. President, God damn Planned Parenthood. And in the end, God will damn them because its very existence is a mockery to him. And he will not be mocked. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to the unborn. And we cannot not do something. Secondly, Christians cannot claim ignorance when it comes to the issues surrounding abortion. 
Look at verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? You know, some will claim that there's no verse in the Bible that commands us to oppose abortion or that the Bible objects to the practice at all. But as we've already discussed, the Bible affirms that all human life has value because all human lives bear the image of God. Even the facts of science make clear that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are unquestionably human. They possess all of the DNA necessary for the formation of a complete human being. So biblical commands against the unjust taking of human life apply to the unborn just as much as they do to every other human being. And so even though we can make the argument in various places from Scripture, we really need not go any further than the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. But even to go further, here in verse 12, the anticipation is that there are those who would say, well, we didn't know. We had no idea. You can think of those Germans in the church singing loudly so they could not hear the screams. And the idea of this verse is that they would say when confronted, well, you know, we were in church, we were singing really great hymns of the faith. We just didn't know. We had no idea this was going on. And I will say, the abortion industry has worked very, very hard to keep people ignorant about what's actually going on. It's very common to talk to women who have had abortions in the past and to hear them say things like, when I was a young lady, I really had no idea. I was told by everyone around me that it's just a a clump of cells, it's quick, it's painless. There will be no issues or complications or anything once it's all done. Just a routine visit to the doctor to take care of it like it's a cough or a sore throat. I never really thought about it beforehand, so I had no information. And the abortion industry, as much as they want their objective to be known as being the care and support of women, they're not doing anything for the sake of women. They're doing all that they can for money. It's a very lucrative business. Their CEO of Planned Parenthood makes over a half a million dollars every single day year. And as with most things that are evil, if you want to know the real reason behind its support, just follow the money. Of course, the abortion industry knows that the more you know about the mechanics of abortion, the less likely you are to have or to support one. The statistics have proven this over and over again. In fact, nearly 90% of women who see an actual ultrasound of their child decide against abortion. So the abortion industry has sought to control the information. For example, Planned Parenthood has a page on their website for teenagers called Abortion Myths, Facts versus Fiction. And it tells teenagers to make sure you have information that is accurate and unbiased. 
And of course, they're supposed to be the great disseminator of that accurate and unbiased information when their annual abortion revenue is $184.7 million. And once you know it, the link they provide goes right back to their main page and summarizes abortion as a safe and legal way for women to choose to end pregnancy. So we cannot deny that there is a very real effort to suppress the truth and keep everyone from knowing what's actually going on. However, what does the text say? The excuse of ignorance will ultimately not hold up with God. Why? Because while we may actually be ignorant of facts, God knows our hearts, God knows our motivations, God knows just how aware we might actually be. He sees through our rationalizations. He knows not just whether or not we are actually ignorant of reality, but he knows why we are ignorant if we are. Is it a negligence of duty to find out? Is it ignorance because of laziness or fear or apathy or preoccupation with lesser things? You may be able to convince others and you may be may even be able to convince yourself that you just don't have enough information to make a decision about all of it, but you cannot evade the all-knowing God. And you see in verse 12, it says, if you say, behold, we didn't know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So it's even more radical than saying you claim you don't know, but God knows that you actually do. No, he's saying, you claim you don't know, and perhaps you don't, but that is not the issue. God knows how your heart works, and he knows why you don't know. He knows our ignorance, but he knows when our ignorance is a guilty ignorance. And so his response won't simply be, why didn't you do something with the knowledge you had? It will also be, why didn't you seek to know more about this very important matter? And he even knows the answer to that question for each of us because as the text says, he keeps watch over our souls. Thirdly, very quickly, Christians can easily become overwhelmed in the battle, but we cannot give up. Look at verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. This is a very difficult work discouraging, spiritually draining. It feels overwhelming. You will be attacked. You will be mocked. You will be hated to say anything against abortion on demand. And when you speak out on the issue, the detractors are going to come out from hiding. And it's important for us to ask God to help us be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. There's no need to be obnoxious. It's wrong to be hateful. We aren't trying to make people dislike us. And it feels like, you know, there are millions of babies being taken away to death. What does it matter what I say? One person. Don't think that way. It matters to that baby whose life is spared and that mother who's been kept from making the worst decision of her life. And the kingdom of God grows one soul at a time. 
We cannot give up. We must use whatever means the Lord puts before us to proactively and faithfully proclaim the importance of protecting life and value of every human being created in the image of God. The Lord is with us. The Lord is on our side and he will supply the strength. He will supply the wisdom. He will supply all that we need to continue in the battle. Don't grow weary. And if you're not in the fight, get involved in the fight in some way because we have a lot of work to do. Do not grow weary in the day of adversity. Lastly, and very importantly, Christians must be clear and consistent in the message that while the sin of abortion is great, Jesus Christ is far greater. This is what we must say. We must say this. Dear young lady, are you afraid to face what has happened? God's mercy invites you to confess to him. Are you guilty and ashamed? God offers forgiveness. Are you full of regret? Jesus Christ is particularly concerned with rebuilding broken lives and making them fruitful. Do you feel a pain that won't go away? God is a refuge for the broken and hopeless. Whatever you are feeling, whatever you are thinking right now, whatever your reaction is, whatever you've experienced, the living God is committed to entering into your struggle and making you new and making you whole. There is mercy, there is hope, there is the promise of transformation. Yes, there is true moral guilt, and all of us are guilty of many moral offenses against God, of which abortion is one. We have all been deceived by the desires of our hearts. We have all pretended something was right when we knew it was wrong. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was born to an unwed mother so that he could live a perfect life on behalf of all those who would trust in him. And then he died a sinner's death, so that the wrath of God that was reserved for sinners would be poured out on him instead. And when we humble ourselves before God, and we have faith in Christ and repent of our sins, we are made to be new, brand new creations in him. The old person is left in the grave. All of our evil deeds are put in the grave and we arise to new life in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, whenever we repent of our sin, because we continue to live in the flesh and so we continue to sin, it is tossed away into the grave and and it remains no more. And we're reminded again and again that he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west so far, he has removed our transgressions from us. We looked in Sunday school at a story from Luke's gospel of a promiscuous woman who wept at Jesus' feet, kissing them, wiping them with her hair. And Jesus said to everyone who watched with judgment in their hearts, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
And Jesus offers the same forgiveness to you. Whatever your sin, whatever your life, if you are not trusting in and following Jesus Christ today, he is willing to receive you as his very own. You don't need to spend your life continually dwelling on your past sin. You can have hope for a new and greater day with Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we have to remember the church is and forever will be a place for broken sinners. It's not a showroom for cleaned up, polished people. It's a hospital for those who can acknowledge they have serious heart problems that need to be fixed and kept each day by the grace of God alone. We must be true to God's word. And part of being true to God's word is loving, supporting, and showing compassion to everyone God brings our way, no matter the circumstances of their lives. So let's do whatever we can to keep the unborn from being taken away to death. We cannot just sing louder and pretend we don't hear their cries. But let's do it with love and compassion and mercy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for challenging all of us. Challenging all of us to consider our own hearts, to consider our own sin and actions in life, the things we've done and the ways we've done them. Also to consider the things we haven't done and the reasons why we haven't done them. And Lord, you've gifted all of us in your church in different ways. And so the ways we use those gifts are going to look different. They're going to serve different means to bring about different ends. But we pray on this issue specifically, Lord, that you help all of us to find ways to use the gifts you've given us to rescue the unborn as they're being brought away to death. We pray, God, that you help us to be wise in the words we use and the way that we use them. As we talk to those who are confused, who are broken, who feel hopeless, that while we don't just pass off their sin as though it doesn't matter, we simultaneously show them much love and compassion that we recognize in them is the same flesh that we have and the only difference between us and them may very well be that we have been redeemed and made new in Christ. And so, Father, help us to work through the difficult balance that while we can call sinners to repentance, we can show them much love and mercy. That they would know we love them and want to be merciful toward them. We want to help and provide for them. And Lord, would you give us the means as a church to do that? Father, help each and every one of us to understand and to see that children truly are a precious gift from your hand. 
they are worthy of the breath that you have intended for them to breathe. And may we embrace the uniqueness of every child, no matter how they are born. And may we love them and care for them and provide for them. And particularly those who are orphans. And so we pray, God, that you would give us a greater heart with regard to this issue. That you would help us to know how to proceed. And I pray especially for any women or men in this room today who have ever had anything to do with abortion. That you would help them to understand the magnitude of your grace and forgiveness. And that they in turn would be able to be used by you for great good. They are a valuable tool in your kingdom. And we pray, God, you would use them boldly, faithfully, joyfully proclaiming that they have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, regardless of their sin, because Christ has died to pay the penalty for their sin. Father, would you be at work in all of us, that you'd be glorified in and through us as we seek to walk obedient to your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.